Our uh, text this morning comes from the lectionary, the set of texts on a three-year cycle. Uh, in June, we're going to have a sermon series on uh, theology and technology. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence. We're going to talk about bioengineering. Uh, we're going to talk about the prospects of technology for the proclamation of the gospel uh, through a theological lens, uh, both in the sermons, but also in uh, a large adult Sunday school opportunity that will take place uh, each Sunday in June. It will also be available online as well for those who won't be around but still would like to participate. Until then, for the rest of May, uh, we have texts that choose us. The preachers didn't choose these texts. The text chose us from the lectionary, and we have one in particular from Psalm 66, verses 8 through 20. So listen to God's word to you and to me. Bless our God, O peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept us among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net you laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride roughshod over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a spacious place. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, those that my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatlings with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what God has done for me. I cried aloud to God, and God was extolled with my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but truly God has listened. God has given heed to the words of my prayer. Blessed be God, because God has not rejected my prayer or removed God's steadfast love from me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this word afresh to us and speak to us. No matter where we find ourselves on life's journey or in our relationship with you, that we could hear clearly a word from your spirit, a word that we need to hear, a word that would change us and transform us, encourage us and equip us to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Many of you know the name Martha Colmey. She was a faithful member of this congregation for six decades. She and her husband, Sid, raised their three sons here at First Pres, and she led and participated in numerous ministries throughout the life of the church, including serving as an elder. She served in our care ministry. She was a driver for Meals on Wheels. For many, many years, Martha was a fixture in the leadership life of our congregation, in the worship life. She always sat right back there. Martha was born uh, June the 9th, 1939, and just before her mother would give birth, the doctor informed her of a serious medical complication that jeopardized this expectant mother's life. The doctor gave her a choice. You could give birth and risk your own death or you could terminate the pregnancy, have emergency surgery, in the hopes that that surgery would save your life. 
through prayer and through conversation with her husband, she made the choice to give birth to Martha. And a few hours after Martha was born, she died. Martha's son, Chris, who is a, also a friend of mine, told that very story at Martha's memorial service this past Thursday. I was sitting behind him in the chapel as he was telling it, and after he shared the story, my mind began to envision the sweet, heavenly reunion Martha and her mother had. I mean, just think about that, especially on this Mother's Day. What a reunion. What a rejoicing that would be. Seeing face to face the woman who quite literally gave her life for you to be reconciled to her and reconciled to God for all eternity. What a vision. After that image began to fade from my mind, a new thought emerged. I started thinking about Martha's father. I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to stand in his shoes on that Friday in the early summer of 1939? On one hand, you have this beautiful child, this beautiful gift of life, this baby girl that you could not love more. And on the other hand, the love of your life the mother of this child, the one that you had planned on rearing and raising this child with, was gone. Today's sermon title comes straight from Psalm 66. I lifted it verbatim. See what the Lord has done. See what the Lord has done. I imagine Martha's father being able to muster these words as he looked at his infant daughter to see what the Lord has done in this gift of this child. But I can also hear him ask, what has the Lord done? What has the Lord allowed? What has the Lord left undone? And why? Why? Why, O oh Lord, has this thing come to pass? These questions still ring in my ear as I know he would have acknowledged that the sovereign God of the universe did not intervene, right? The one who had the power to heal her body did not. The one who had the power to intervene did not. And so more perplexing questions begin to emerge. Did God will her death? Did God orchestrate her death? Did God put this burden of grief and heartache on his back for a reason? Friends, Psalm 66 is an incredibly difficult, challenging, and complex text. And at first glance, it's a text that implores both the community and the individual friend of God to both hear and see what God has done and to tell the world about it, to share how God has listened, to share how God has rescued, uh, how God has restored. Consider the back half of verse 12, where it reads, you have brought us out to a spacious place. The Hebrew word we translate to the phrase spacious place shows up only one other time in the Psalter. Only one other psalm has that word, and it might just be the most famous of all psalms, Psalm 23. 
Some of you know it by heart. Verse 5 of that psalm reads, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It's that last word, overflows, that is translated in Psalm 66 as a spacious place. You see, what the psalmist is saying here is that God creates an overflow of goodness and mercy in our lives and in the life of the community. The psalmist knows God as the one who provides a surplus, a surplus, an abundance of God's presence and God's love for us. Candidly, that uh, sermon, I'm gonna be honest, is really easy to preach. It's pretty straightforward. I'm sure you need no convincing, whether you're new to the faith, whether you're considering the faith, whether you've been a part of the faith for a long time, I'm sure I do not need to convince you that part of the identity of the Christian is expressed in gratitude to God for what God has done, for how God has been God in our lives, especially in and through Jesus Christ. As I said, that's straightforward and that's really easy to preach. What is not easy to preach are verses 10 through 12. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. At first glance, the psalmist seems to be indicating that God has tested and tried God's people. The text infers that God has, in fact, trapped them. You brought us into a net. That God puts burdens and trials and tribulations on their backs. God allowed others to rule and ride over them to have authority over their lives. God allowed them to experience fires and to experience floods. In your own life, friends, when you, when you think about ways that you feel trapped, I mean, even now, ways that you feel trapped in your life, or when you think about the burdens you carry, or when you think about the power that others have exerted over you to do you harm, or when you think about all the fires and the floods you've had to endure, I suspect that you are very, very, very reluctant to attribute these things to God. And rightfully so. I think it would be a spiritual disaster of cataclysmic proportions. I think it would be the end of many people's faith if it came to pass that God was somehow the cause of a child or grandchild's death or somehow the cause of a pregnancy that was lost, or the orchestrator of violence or abuse that we've experienced, or the instigator of depression or addiction or cancer or loneliness or restlessness or divorce or anxiety. Friends, I just don't believe in that God. So how do we make sense of this text that has chosen us this morning? of Psalm 66. The first thing I think we ought to do is locate the text within the lens of refinement. This is what verse 10 says. For you, O God, 
have tested us. This word test, I know when we think of tests, we think of school and we think of testing our knowledge. But what this word means in the Hebrew is a process of purification. The writer uses, in fact, an example of purification with silver, a precious metal, where it would go through a process where it was heated to such a degree that it would begin to melt and the impurities would come to the surface so that they could be removed. And so what the writer is saying is that God is present and working through the circumstances of our lives, in the experiences of our lives, to form us and mold us and purify us and make us into more and more of the image and likeness of Christ. This process is often called in the scriptures a test. And I think it's part of the larger theological idea of sanctification. The process where the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us and changes us and sharpens us and molds us and makes us more and more into the likeness of Christ. That the Holy Spirit works in the midst of joy and in the midst of challenge. That the Holy Spirit works in the shadow of death, and on the mountaintop. To say it another, get, another way, the test that God gives us is not that God orchestrated violence or abuse or power against us or against you. That's not the test. The test is that as you have been subject to the sins of others, the test is to trust in the truth that what God allows, God redeems. The test is to live into what Joseph said to his brothers in the book of Genesis. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. The test is to remember that God is God and not the one who exercised their power over you. The test is to trust that when you sense a call, when the time comes to forgive, if the time comes to show mercy even to the worst offender, the test is whether or not we do it. Friends, the test is not that God caused your child or grandchild to die or for you to lose a pregnancy or for someone to die by suicide that we loved or for someone to no longer be with us. The test is whether we'll cling to the promise that from God all life has come and to God all life returns. That's the test. The test is that even as we're swallowed up by grief, that we look for the light that's breaking in through the darkness, a light that leads us to a God who rescues and who saves, a God that will make a way when there seems to be no way. The test is not that God instigated our illness or our addiction. The test is that in the midst of this mortal and fragile existence, we receive the invitation to put our faith in Jesus Christ, who is our healer, who is the great physician, who is our Lord. The test is not that God sets fire to our lives or drowns us out with floods. The test is whether we'll trust Christ's word in the midst of the fires and the flood that will inevitably come. To trust Christ's word spoken through the Apostle Paul from the book of Romans when he said, all things work together for good according to God's purposes to those who love God. And his words from his correspondence with the church in Corinth, God is faithful and God will not let you be tested beyond your strength 
But with the testing, God will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Friends, what is of the utmost importance for interpreting this particular text, I believe is an understanding of the nature and the character of the one who is refining us. This text only makes sense if we know who it is that tests, that forms, that shapes, that molds, and that challenges. Because the truth of the matter is, we will not know, at least on this side of eternity, answers to the many why questions that we have. We're just not going to know. But one thing we can know is the answer to the question, who? Who is this God that we're talking about? When I was in my early 30s, I regularly played golf at a course called Hershey's Mill in Chester County, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. It's not too far from the church where Katie and I had our first call to ministry. The golf course was actually laid out amidst a retirement community, and because of that, the 18th hole from tee to green was lined on the left-hand side with independent living cottages. You had the fairway, you had the rough, you had the out-of-bounds stakes, and you had the cottages. You can see where the story's going. So I got up for my tee shot on the 18th hole, and I pulled it way left. It was a terrible, terrible drive. And as I tracked the ball, I noticed that it was heading right toward a deck of one of these cottages. And then I heard a crash. I put my driver in the bag, I hopped in the cart, and I began to drive toward where I, I thought my ball had landed. And as we got closer, about 30 yards away, I got out of my cart because I couldn't go into that part of the property. I started to walk and I noticed a woman holding a flower pot in two hands because it had shattered. And as I approached her, she started yelling at me. She said, you broke my favorite pot. She said, how in the world could you hit such a bad shot? The fairway is over there. She said, do you think maybe you should try tennis or something else? Now, she's saying this as I'm walking closer and closer. And as she comes into a more clearer view, I realize that it is Mrs. Cockshaw, a member of my church. When I noticed, I said, Pat, 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 it's me, Tony Sundermeyer. And immediately her disposition and her countenance changed. I was her pastor. I was also the pastor to her husband who had just died some six weeks earlier. He was a good friend to me. He was an encouragement in my early days of ministry. And Pat knew that. Pat knew about our friendship, knew about the love that we had for, for one another the rest of our interaction on her back deck was totally different than how it began. Why? Simple. She knew me. She knew me. She knew that I loved her. She, she knew that I had her best interests in mind. She knew that I wouldn't do anything to intentionally hurt her or harm her 
or disrupt her day. In the midst of the calamity and the midst of that disturbance because of my errant tee shot, she responded with an openness, a forgiveness, a, a welcome because she knew me. She knew me. Friends, this illustration is far from perfect. God doesn't hit bad tee shots. But I do hope it highlights the notion of what a difference it makes when we know the nature and the character of the God who is testing us. In the midst of what disturbs us, in the midst of what shakes us, we know this God is God. And as the psalmist says, this God does not reject our prayers and this God will not withhold God's love for us. This God is not working to do us harm, but working to bring about good in and through our lives. And so friends, when we find ourselves experience a fire or a flood, when we feel burdens on our back, know that this is not the test that God gives us. The test is to remember who this God is. That's the test. That this God is one who seeks to make goodness and mercy overflow in our lives, even in the darkest hours. This is a God who is with us and for us, in Jesus Christ. This is the God who gives us confidence to truly say, see what the Lord has done. Amen.